because what the research says is if you're going to respond to a particular treatment, it's going to happen four to six weeks in. And if you don't see a response, it doesn't mean you have to bail on the treatment that you have, but you do need to be evaluating why it's not working and what you might be able to do differently. What can you add? What can you shift? Um, and not just keep doing the same thing. So I, I'm, I'm with that 100%. listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hi there, welcome to this week's podcast. This week you'll hear the chat that I had with Lucine Wisniewski. Dr. Wisniewski specializes in DBT for eating disorders and so that is what we're going to be talking about today. We talk about, first of all, what DBT is, why it's useful, and then we go into some discussion on the different types of eating disorder, so anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder, and how they differ, and how something like DBT may be used for each of those different illnesses, and where its strengths are in regards to type of eating disorder and you know even the different comorbid disorders that a person may present with so the first question that I asked Lucine Wisniewski is to tell me a little bit about herself here's the podcast I'm just checking yeah so you know so in terms of um you know I've been treating eating disorders since I don't know to no, I don't know. Actually, that's a good question. Since 1990, 90, um, and yeah, it's hard to keep track of time. Um, and I, you know, was originally trained as a cognitive behavioral therapist in the um, sort of most research-oriented way that you could. Like my, I cut my teeth on a clinical trial. Uh, the trial that I was working on was CBT versus BT for, which is cognitive behavioral therapy versus behavior therapy um, for binge eating disorder. And the, and I was a under, I was a pre-doctoral student working on that trial. And, you know, I learned my CBT uh, through training from Chris Fairburn. So, you know, I felt myself very lucky to have learned CBT the way that it was designed from the master from very early on. Um, and then uh, somehow really very serendipitously was trained in DBT, never really thinking that I would use it. I think I was a postdoc um, and someone said, do you want to do this training? And I said, oh, sure. You know, I was always up for learning something new. Um and the way that, and I always tell people this story because I think, you know, you don't really know where life is going to take you. And if you stay open to possibilities, you could get opened up to things that you hadn't even realized were going to be useful to your life and to the people that you work with. And so I learned DBT um, and then happened to move to Seattle, Washington, where uh, Marshall Linehan is is uh, at the University of Washington, and because I needed a job, and I had been intensively trained, um, and I'd had a had a new baby, so I wasn't going to take a big academic position. I actually worked for Marshall Linehan for a period of time, you know, at part time, um, and learned my DBT again, you know, sort of at the uh, at the chair of the master. Um, 
and again, still not thinking about using it with eating disorder patients, although that was really my passion, working with eating disorders was always the thing that I wanted to do. Um, and then I, I think over time I started to think, and this is back in, I'm going to say 19, yeah, again, time is not my uh, strong suit. I'm going to say 19, I was in Seattle from 97 to 99. Um, and, you know, and at that point, the original um, adaptations using DBT by Christy Telch and Deborah Safer were just starting to come out. Um but that wasn't the DBT that I was interested in because that was really being used for people who were um, had a low level of eating disorder pathology. And I was found myself drawn to trying to think about how to help people who weren't helped by other treatments, uh, people who um, were considered difficult, and I'll say difficult in quotes, because they had not responded to what the standard treatments were. Um, and so I, you know, was starting to think about, all right, is there a way to bring standard DBT, the DBT that I was learning and doing, um, at the University of Washington with the eating disorder treatment that I was trained in, you know, via Chris Fairburn back in the eighties. And so, uh, w while I was in Seattle, I really just started to think about how would I bring these two things together? Um, for the people who hadn't responded um, to other more um, common empirically founded treatments. And so that's how I really came to it, which I, I think about, and I tell that story um, pretty much anytime anyone will ask me about my relationship to DBT, because to me, it exemplifies a couple different things. One is, again, as I said earlier, staying open to possibilities, um, and then also sort of um, sticking with research and using both of those, you know, to be able to think about new avenues for treatment for people who don't respond well to standard approaches. And um, for anybody listening that doesn't know what DBT is, could you, um, could you give us a, a quick roundup um, lowdown on DBT? Sure. Dialectical Behavior Therapy, or DBT, is a treatment originally developed by Marsha Linehan at the University of Washington. Um, it's a treatment that brings together cognitive behavioral and more sort of mindfulness and Eastern acceptance-based traditions to work with people with significant emotion regulation difficulties. Uh, originally, it was used with people who had chronic suicidality um, and now it has been shown to be helpful for the treatment of people with borderline personality disorder, substance use disorder, chronic depression, um, teens with suicidality and self-harm, um, and eating disorders. And so you mentioned before that you were really interested and always were passionately interested in working with people with eating disorders. So why was that? Uh, you know, it's an interesting thing for me. It, uh, I actually, and again, this is back to the serendipitous story of uh, be open to what comes to you. I went to graduate school um, thinking I was going to be only a researcher uh, and not see patients um, uh, because I was really more interested in the science at that point um, and went to graduate school. Uh, no, I'm sorry, applied to graduate school 
only to programs that had psychophysiology programs. Um, and then during my interview at the University of Pittsburgh, met with a guy named Len Epstein, who is a uh, very famous pediatric obesity researcher, um, and just fell in love with the notion of working with people around eating. I, I, it just it just made sense to me. Um, and and decided then and there that if I didn't get into any other to if I didn't get into that uh, program that I wouldn't go to graduate school and I'd take a year off um, and reapply. But as it happens, I was accepted, um, and and over time, you know, became uh, you know interested in not just eating and weight management because I think you know we all have a relationship with food. Um, whereas we don't all have a relationship with depression or psychosis or uh, other sort of issues that psychologists might work with. We all have an issue with food. I, I began to become interested in um, when that relationship goes awry, not just in a um, in the framework because obesity is not a eating disorder. Obesity is a behavioral issue or, or a genetic issue, depending on who you talk to. Um, and then I, uh, it, it just always seemed to make sense to me um, and felt like something that feels like it's everywhere. Um, in fact, I was at a family gathering uh, with people that I don't see very often uh, just recently and in the span of 15 minutes, um, you know, heard about three different diets and people's attempts to manage their eating. Um, and I just, I find it fascinating that our culture is so focused on body image, weight and shape that it has always felt to me like something that, you know, somebody needs to do something about. Uh, so, you know, that's sort of the long answer to your question, but it's always been the thing that has made sort of some sort of intuitive sense to me. Um, and been something that I've I've sort of hoped to make a dent in, um, in terms of my professional life. And so, um, how tell me about how how DBT therefore might might work to help somebody who has an eating disorder. So I, I think about DBT as uh, you know this is a, again a complicated answer because um, there are treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy, depending on the eating disorder we're talking about, cognitive behavioral therapy and interpersonal psychotherapy that might have more data behind them and that you'd likely want to start with given that they are generally cheaper and more streamlined and a bit more vetted than DBT. That being said, there are some people for whom those treatments didn't work in the first place, for example. Um, and then may also have emotion regulation issues be at the core of their illness, because I think there are lots of different ways, pathways that people end up with an eating disorder. And one of the pathways is using eating disorder behaviors to manage emotions. And that's not everyone. Um, but for those people, DBT uh, it, it could, could be a uh, potential treatment that would focus specifically on helping people learn skills to be able to manage their emotions more effectively. The other population that to me DBT makes sense for is someone who shows up that has eating disorders but may also suffer from borderline personality disorder and or self-harm and suicidality where people really become flummoxed around um, how do you prioritize 
these uh, two potentially lethal conditions, the eating disorder and the self-harm and suicidality. And DBT offers a framework um, to be able to address them simultaneously. And um, I think I've mostly heard of DBT being used um, in treatment for bulimia and nervosa. Mm -hmm. um, but I am interested, you know, say, say if we take, um, just for sake of uh, time, take, take anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. Um, how, how may the implementation of, of DBT differ? Um, and is it more effective for one or the other? type of eating disorder? Yeah, so, so I think that you ask a very important question that the science hasn't quite gotten to just yet, but there are, um, you are correct in your assumption that there's more research on using DBT for bulimia and binge eating disorder than for anorexia. Um, that being said, uh, I think that, you know, there are, are um, and I will also say that and this is where we're splitting hairs here. So not knowing what level of understanding of DBT the people who are listening might have, I'm gonna split the hair so that um, we can all be very clear about where to, you know, how to think about using DBT treatment. So there's a fantastic uh, book, treatment guide that is written by Deborah Safer, Christy Telch and Eunice Chen um, that is uh, DBT for binge eating and bulimia, and it's either uh, group treatment for folks with uh, binge eating disorder and an individual treatment for folks with bulimia nervosa, but it doesn't, so DBT, um, standard DBT, the way that it was written, um, is provided in four modalities, individual therapy, group skills training, uh, folks have access to their therapists, um, outside of treatment for telephone skills coaching, and then the therapists are meant to go to a consultation team um, where, they're, where the job of the consultation team is to provide support and accountability to those therapists and to help with therapist burnout, and in particular to make sure that the therapist continues to provide the treatment the way that it's written. And, and that's sort of, that's standard DBT. Um, the adaptation and in that book that is, again, a most excellent book, and most excellent treatment guide is for folks with bulimia and binge eating, but it only involves the provision of skills. Um, it doesn't actually do the, the rest of the model. And so it has been used and evaluated mostly for people with fairly low level of symptom with no comorbidity. So when you talk about people that have comorbidity and significant other problems that they're struggling with, um, my, the, the, at least the, the recommendation, and this is really more a clinical than a research recommendation because I don't think anybody's done a dismantling study to say this is necessary or sufficient. Um, but when we talk about someone with comorbidity, uh, along with the eating disorder, we're talking about the full model of DBT. Now, I will tell you that the, the standard full model of DBT doesn't address eating in the same way that we do um, in traditional eating disorder work, right? It doesn't, the diary card, for example, um, does not include a way to self-monitor intake. Um, and so the way that, that at least in my uh, work that we've uh, developed DBT or we've included some of those standard CBT for eating disorder techniques as part of the DBT that we do. 
So that would be, you know, uh, monitoring food logs um, as part of treatment so that because you, you know, you really can't in good conscience work with someone with anorexia nervosa um, if you're not also paying attention to what they're eating in some way. Um, so I don't know, that was a long-winded answer, and I'm not sure that I got to all of the pieces that you were looking for. <laughs> um, it's just, um, yeah, I don't know that I'm ever looking for any pieces. I actually, yeah. um, you know, um, I find that, that, you know, uh, research out there or, 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 or not, um, I'm most interested, I think, in your opinion and your experience. I, um, you know, more than anything else with, with the sort of populations of people that you've worked with, you know, what do you think that, that you, you've seen or observed or, you know, just um, opinions on, on how DBT best works and, and for whom it best works? Um, yeah. So, so I think that in, in, if you're asking about my clinical experience, my clinical experience is that DBT is particularly effective with people with emotion dysregulation um, and self-harm and suicidality. That's where I think it's strongest. Um, and so any of those illnesses, whether it be anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder, where there's emotion regulation issues at the core of the illness uh, is appropriate. Now, you know, if you work with someone with restricting anorexia, um, you know, we're really still as a field trying to figure out what is the best uh, modality, what is the best framework to be able to help folks with chronic AN or even with not chronic AN, but, you know, just plain old restrictive AN. Um, and I do use DBT in those situations um, as well. Um, I know there's an adaptation that is being developed uh, called RODBT, uh, where there are some skill that's radically open, uh, where they've been developing skills more for the emotionally constrained individual than the emotionally labile individual. Uh, but in my experience, the, one of the things that happens with someone with anorexia nervosa is they, they can be very emotionally restricted and constrained um, until there's more food on board, and then you see the more mood liability, in which case the standard DBT approaches are, are um, helpful. Right, yeah. I'm just thinking from my own experience with, with anorexia, I was absolutely very, um, I was um, very emotionally restrained, um, constricted when I was very underweight and, and frankly i didn't even it wasn't intentional I, there was just sure there was just nothing there it, it wouldn't have been much good <laughs> talking to me about anything i don't think really um yeah however when when food um when i started to weigh that definitely changed and actually one thing that i was just thinking about when um when you were talking about that is i i've i've noticed that with most people who have um, been heavily in a restrictive eating disorder, there comes a point in weight restoration when the emotions come flooding back. It's like suddenly it all comes back. I absolutely felt that. It can be yeah. devastating because actually most of the time it's emotion around how the sickness, um, for me, how the sickness had affected me, the relationships it had made me end, the, uh, all, all of the isolation that I was in. Yeah. So, these um, you you might think it might be happiness emotions of oh yay I'm recovering but really it was a lot of grief and oh, a lot of yeah. regret and a lot of 
sadness and depression. And I do notice with other people that I work with with restrictive anorexia and talk to that they often get to a point in weight restoration when it suddenly just snowballs, like it just, bam, hits all of these emotions and can be incredibly difficult to deal with for somebody that has not had strong emotions for a very long time. No, that's exactly right. And and just like, and you described it beautifully. And I think the, the only thing I would add to your description is if you think about the fact that um, people generally develop um, restrictive anorexia, perhaps in early to late teen years, where the rest of the their cohort is learning little by little how to deal with emotional issues, because that's the prime time in development where you're learning to do that. And because you might have been um, uh, not neurologically in a place where you could experience emotions, you're sort of numbed out and, and disconnected. You didn't get that opportunity to learn how to deal with them, you know, little by little, inoculating yourself in terms of understanding uh, what your skill set is to, to manage those feelings. And then here we are, however much period of time later, um, when when you're starting to restore your nutrition and then those feelings come flooding back. So not only did you not get the opportunity to learn how to deal with little emotional issues as you went along, now you're getting the tidal wave, um, which would be hard for anybody, but especially hard for someone who didn't have the opportunity to learn how to deal with smaller stresses along the way. Right, and the huge, and the thing that um, really scares me, scares the crap out of me, um, for people who are adult sufferers and have had a really sort of long period of restriction is 10, what I have seen happen a number of times is when that emotion wave hits, the only way they know how to make it stop is to start restricting again. Yeah, that's right. Away. That's right. That's right. Which is where, so what you bring back then is how um, DBT skills can be very useful even to people with anorexia nervosa where at first blush people are would say, well, you know, people with anorexia don't have labile emotions. Well, they don't until they start refeeding. Um, and so teaching the DBT skills, I think, is, um, you know, a useful intervention. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. It's, um, and it, it's sort of the, having the right sort of support there Someone, someone there that can actually recognize when that person starts to go through that because most of us just are so thrown by it that we don't even know how to describe that suddenly all these, these thoughts and emotions are happening and are coming back and we don't know where from and we don't know why because it's sort of, for me it was 10 years of, of yeah. this really cold unemotional place and then suddenly I had all this grief and anger and I didn't really know where it was coming from at that point. Right. Um, so I think that, you know, it has to be something that it, it is that people are on top of in treatment from um, anor or anorexia treatment centers that this, this happens to us and it can be devastating and it can also cause relapse. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so um, I, I'd love to talk a little bit about binge eating disorder, actually. Um, yeah. Because I, I think it's often not talked about enough. <laughs> and, um, yeah. So how is, is there a sort of typical case of how DBT might work for somebody with binge eating disorder and sort of the, the places that it comes into action and practices that might be used? Well, I think that there's a couple different um, 
avenues in. I don't know that there's ever a typical, you know. I think that uh, it's an interesting phrase, you know, to think about because people can be just so individual. Um, But I think um, for people with binge eating, when you've uh, when there are when binge eating is prompted by emotional issues, whether it be the desire to um, usually it's a it's an escape behavior um, where there there is a, whether it be a positive or a negative emotion that feels uncomfortable and that there is a desire to avoid. You know, eating is can be a very uh, efficient way to make that go away. Um, the problem is there are other consequences associated with it. And some of that is really quite normal behavior. You know, we celebrate with food and we, um, you know, people do sometimes overeat and sometimes, but, but obviously with binge eating is when things are uh, taken to the extreme. And so learning DBT skills, first of all, of understanding and managing emotions, like can I, can I learn to name my emotions? Can I learn to tolerate my emotions? Can I, can I learn to ride them like a wave rather than feel like I need to make them go away, which is what, you know, whether it be the binge eating and then the discomfort that they feel after the binge eating um, serves historically as, a, as a, uh, an effective distraction to those emotions and teaching people, number one, at the sort of front end of their behaviors um, to be able to identify and manage emotions without behaviors that um, help them escape or avoid would be the first step. The um, other place that I think uh, DBT skills can be useful for folks with binge eating disorder is mindfulness and eating more mindfully. Uh, Because, you know, whether or not someone is attempting to um, use binge eating as a way, and and remember, none of this is necessarily, you know, oh, I'm going to go binge eat so I don't uh, have to think about this. I mean, some of it, sometimes that may happen, but often this is really at the back of someone's mind and it, it just happens. They figured out somehow that it, that it quote unquote works for them. Um, but if you work with someone to be able to eat their meals more mindfully, you can potentially help them be able to identify when the pattern may be going awry. So mindful eating um, is another place where I think that uh, DBT can um, intervene with people that have binge eating and frankly with people who just have overeating, not necessarily binge eating, mindful eating can help with that as well. Um, again, as a culture, um, uh, I'm, I can tell by your accent, uh, Tabitha, that perhaps you're not American, um, but I don't know that this is a particularly American issue, but we tend to eat in front of the television, eat while working, eat uh, while doing other things. And, you know, there's a lot of research to suggest that when you're not mindful to eating, you, you tend to eat more than you would have had you not um, been doing something else while you're eating. So this is another place where um DBT can be useful. And then finally, there is a series of skills that would help someone who has a significantly emotional distressing um, issue or event where they can learn other ways to be able to distract, take care of themselves, self-soothe, that doesn't involve um, using their eating disorder behaviors to be able to address those emotions. So it's identifying the emotions on one end, dealing with mindfulness around food in the middle, um, and then um, a set of skills called distress tolerance skills 
um, at the other end um, to be able to um, manage situations effectively without using eating disorder behaviors to do so. I think those um, those distress management tools that you spoke about. Now that that part really interests me, um, and you know, because because my my experience, um, personal experiences with anorexia, so. Um, interested in all eating disorders, but I, I always um, uh, intuitively come at something from an anorexia point of view. And, you know, things like my, I actually had to practice mindlessness in eating to help myself eat. So I had to actually add distraction so I wasn't obsessing about the food and things like that. But that, that last part, um, sort of distress management, now that's, that's one that I could have done with help with because anything, any type of stress, I would default to restriction um, yeah. to help me manage that stress. And I think that this is also, um, we spoke a little, you spoke a little bit about comorbids earlier. And I think that this, this is also the interesting part here. So if somebody has a, a comorbid of self-harm or, or, you know, or just, just something like that, they, they can then resort to other um, not very healthy stress management practices if they are not using food, which again becomes problematic and, and yeah. not ideal. Well, you know, I appreciate that you brought up the issue of um, with anorexia feeling like you needed to use mindlessness. This is often a uh, piece about DBT that people bring up. There was a period probably about five or six years ago where the notion of mindful eating was getting a lot of attention and people were trying to think about like, well, maybe really what someone with anorexia needs is um, to be able to eat mindfully. And so we went ahead and did a research study on using mindfulness versus distraction um, in a real eating situation with patients in a day treatment program, some of whom had anorexia, some of whom had bulimia, Others had EDNOS, um, but we, the people who had more of a restricting illness really did not do well with um, a mindfulness intervention around eating because exactly of what you said, that they actually need, what they need to practice is less focus on eating. And, and there are distraction skills as part of DBT and really using those at least in higher levels of care um, is, uh, you know, when their illness is really at its height would be the intervention of choice, not mindfulness. Whereas someone with bulimia and binge eating, the mindfulness may be key. Um, I'm, I, can I ask you a question? Of course. Yeah, so like, do you feel like now, because um, I've always wondered about this because you know the, the research study that we did suggested that mindfulness in the more acute phase um, really made people more distressed, did not help. Um, in fact, they had more behaviors later if we asked them to be mindful rather than to distract during the meal. Um, do you feel like now that you're sort of a distance away from your the acute part of your illness, do you feel like you can be mindful or do you think that you still need to distract uh, um, around food and yeah. eating? Um, around food and eating, it just really, um, I don't feel that I need to be mindful or, or not. I just... I just eat and I enjoy eating um, and I, I don't, I, I truly, because say, um, you know, anorexia and binge eating disorder are such different mental illnesses, I just can't, I don't think that a person with anorexia could ever eat mindlessly, even if they are trying to, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. it's, it's, yeah. it's like, 
we are so cued in naturally to food that even now my idea of of sort of eating without with, with eating mindlessly is probably on par to somebody else's idea of being very mindful about what they're eating. Um, gotcha. When I was very sick, I actually um, the only way I could get myself to eat enough was by um, using Sudoku puzzles. I had to, and also right. cr crosswords. Um, I couldn't actually eat without that puzzle book because I, I, it just was the, I had to distract. I had to be thinking about something else. And yeah. so I found that incredibly soothing. And, you know, I, then after weight restoration, then the, the, the need to be doing a crossword while eating disappeared. I, I can just sit and eat my food, have a chat with somebody. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't have to have that to eat. I can pretty much eat any time but I'd say that I'm so naturally because of my illness mindful about what I'm eating that, yep. that it's just never going to come into question I'm always gonna have half an eye on you know food even yeah. when I think I'm yeah. even when I think I'm not it's subconsciously there that's an interesting point thank you but um you know I, I do I do know that um, so for, so um, for the meal support, I've, I've set up an online meal support service and um, one of the things that we've, we've noticed most there is that actually most people that use the meal support service, um, they just want to be distracted. They, if it's anorexia, they, they want to eat, but they want someone to talk to that can distract them while they're eating. That's, yeah. that's huh. pretty much the service is, is just that, distraction and support. Um, and, um, you know, I know that it's very, very different with binge eating disorder. It's a completely different illness. And actually learning to be mindful about what one is eating, which for somebody with my brain, I, I'm just like, I, c I don't think I could mindlessly, gosh, like really, you know, really, I don't think I could. I think I could maybe yeah yeah you could be less mindful <laughs> but you're not going to yes. be mindless i'm i'm with you I, that makes total sense to me mm -hmm. yeah it's you know, really like, helpful to hear you say it that way too yeah like I, I might have an extra handful of chips or something but i'd still i might not you know i might not exactly know how big that handful was but i'd still know there that was you had a handful of chips in <laughs> absolutely there. Um, yeah. you know, it, it, and I wouldn't I'm not necessarily saying that now I'd know that and feel bad about it or anything. I'd, I wouldn't feel bad. I'd feel good about it, but I'd still know, <laughs> still know it was there. Gotcha. Yeah. And I think, I do think the differences are, are really, they fascinate me, the, the little differences, but I think that they are the things that are the game changers when it comes to treatment is, is those differences. Um, and that they're very important. Yeah, no, I would agree a hundred percent. Um, and so, um, when, when do you think, um, say if there's somebody listening to this and they, um, have binge eating disorder and they're thinking, you know, this sounds like something that could be really useful for me right now. How would they go around about getting uh, more information about this or actually getting some kind of help, um, or, or, you know, DBT practitioner? Yeah. Um, so I guess I'd say two things because I'm assuming that your podcast could reach people in literally all over the world. And so, you know, there is a website, um, 
that's I think believe it's www.behavioraltech.org and it is the the website that's managed by Marshall Linehan's training group and people who have been intensively trained in DBT can be listed on that website. So, you know, if you're lucky enough to live in a town where there's a DBT practitioner, um, I would start there. Um, if you don't live somewhere where there's a DBT practitioner, the truth is if, if you can um, get a therapist who is willing and interested and get that uh, training manual that I described, that is the Christy, this is for binge eating, um, Christy Telch, Deborah Safer, and Eunice Chen, uh, book on DBT for eating disorders, that would be, you could ask to see if your therapist would w use that book together with you to be able to work on um, receiving that treatment. So those would be the two things that I would recommend. One, starting with the behavioral tech website, um, and then two, thinking about that training manual uh, for people with binge eating disorder. Fabulous. And do you have a blog or any resources or anything if people are interested in learning more about you? Um, I do have a website. It's www.lucinewisniewski, that's one word, dot com. Fabulous. Thank you, Lucine. Um, is there anything else that you want to add in there that you'd like to talk about? Um, well, I would say, you know, the thing to me about, and I so appreciate the opportunity to speak to you because, uh, you know, my, I think that there will be people who are listening, who are looking for hope. And I think, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, meaning treating eating disorders for a long time. And, and I'm always struck by the fact that people can get better and they do get better. And even when they have had multiple treatments and things haven't worked, um, that I want to say, don't give up, keep trying, keep searching, keep, keep trying to figure out the thing that's going to work for you. Um, and you know, e eventually things will change. Yeah. Um, and I absolutely, I couldn't agree more with you. I always say to people, actually, Recovery is inevitable if you keep trying. It, yeah, it is. I like that. It's not, uh, it's not, is it, I always get asked this question, do you think it's possible? And like, it's not just possible, it's inevitable. If we keep trying, we will work this out. It's, you know, it's yeah. just, it's just um, and I do, I think that also with that, it's, it's not just trying, but it's also being pretty quick to um, realize when something is not working give it a couple of months, if there's no change, if there's no improvement, then change it, just changing something, even if it's something small, just, just saying this is, I, I need more, I need more ROI on this. I need to see, um, and is there something we can change and tweak? I do think that, um, you know, a lot of people are in inverted commas tr treatment for say three years. And then after three years, nothing has changed. And it's like, yeah, that probably should have stopped after six months. Absolutely. Well, you know, and I think that you're absolutely right, because what the research says is if you're going to respond to a particular treatment, it's going to happen four to six weeks in. And if you don't see a response, it doesn't mean you have to bail on the treatment that you have, but you do need to be evaluating why it's not working and what you might be able to do differently. What can you add? What can you shift um, and not just keep doing the same thing. So I, I'm, I'm with that 100%. Yeah, and the other thing that I, I really think about um, any kind of mental health treatment is that the, 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 the sufferer it has ultimately the greatest insight into 
what can help them and what can not and really they it's up to them to advocate and speak up and tell the therapist you know actually when you say this thing my head thinks this thing and I know yeah. rather than because I have a lot of people that say oh I don't want to say that because then she'll like think that that's a um, insult or that I'm purposely trying to be difficult but especially with eating disorders because they twist everything so yeah. so much it's vital that sufferers say hey you know when you said that well my eating disorder interprets that as this and therefore it's not helpful and um, I think that sufferers just feeling empowered that they can actually sort of uh, work with a therapist to help them get better rather than just be told what to do yeah. is yeah. is really um, a game changer when it comes to um, treating the person like an individual. Um, and yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And, and if your therapist is not willing to hear that, then maybe you've got the wrong therapist. And isn't that the truth? And a big thank you to Dr. Lucy Mwesniewski for talking with me today. And um, you can find any links to Dr. Wisniewski on the show notes and any of the references, actually, that we spoke about as well. You'll find those in the show notes to this episode. This um, podcast episode on DBT, I, I actually did as response to a request from somebody who wrote in and asked to know a little bit more about dbt um in that case it was actually for bulimia a person whose daughter had bulimia and she had heard about dbt and um, it had been suggested to her but she wanted to find out a little bit more so please do contact me if you have requests for podcasts if you have a question about anything that's to do with an eating disorder, eating disorder recovery or treatment, you can bet that somebody else wants to know about it as well. So always reach out to me. You can get me at info at Cheers and until next time, cheerio.